Hello, 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 good day, and welcome to another episode of After School History. I am, as always, your genial host, Anthony J. Ashutino. And today I wanted to wrap up the uh, the mini-series I've been doing uh, about the First World War, the Great War. Um, one of the seminal moments of, you know, world history. Uh, and I wanted to close things off. I've, I've done a three-part series, if you haven't listened to it. By all means, go back and listen. Um, you know, I've done three parts. The first was on origins. The second was on tactics, weapons, and battles. And this is the third. And the third one is about the end of the war the and the lasting impact of the war. Because it was uh, a tremendous influencer. And we are really still living with many of the results of the war today. So let's start out right off the bat with, um, you know, just, just touching up. The war ended in 1918 uh, on the 11th, day of, uh, the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. The guns fell silent over the Western Front. And that's when the only power uh, from the Central Powers, Germany, that still had any kind of an ability to fight the war, that's when they cried uncle. Um, and so the war ended. Now, you know, there had been rumors for months that the war was going to end. It had been going badly for a while. Um, in fact, most of the central powers had completely uh, fallen apart during this time. Uh, Austria-Hungary you know, literally ceased to be an empire. It broke apart into a number of different uh, nation-states, um, the Ottoman Empire, likewise, you know, their ability to, you know, exert influence over large tracts of their land uh, was was no longer viable. But Germany, <clears throat> Germany of all this, of all of the, the forces, they still were in charge of enemy land. For example, they still held parts of France. They still held parts of Belgium. Uh, when the armistice went into effect. And an armistice, again, this is something I get asked a lot of the times, an armistice does not mean that the war is over. It's not a peace treaty. An armistice basically means we're going to stop fighting. Okay, And there are usually provisions to an armistice, such as we're not just going to stop fighting, we're going to stop fighting and you're going to withdraw your troops. Now, which side gets to determine that is usually based upon, well, it's always based upon, which side is in control. So by the fall of 1918, here was the situation on the Western Front. The entry of the United States into the war had proven decisive. Uh, the number of soldiers that were simply swarming across uh, every growing month made it so that Germany could not compete. Plus, besides that, uh, the effects of you know the British blockade of Germany... Uh, you know, the, the naval blockade of Germany, um, you know, had made it so that there were literally, you know, riots about the lack of food in German cities. Uh, Germany was done. They were done by 1918. They no longer had, in the spring of 1918, they launched their final major offensive, Operation Michael. Um, and that was that. Uh, they almost pulled it off, but not really. Uh, you know, the bottom line was that, again, you know, you can give a lot of, as Germany was to learn in World War II, sometimes you can conquer a lot of land, and it doesn't really mean anything. 
Uh, the Allies were able to give some land. They came within 50 miles of Paris, not the 15 miles that they were in in 1914. But their soldiers had, had reached a breaking point. There was, you know, famine going on, not only on the home front, but, you know, even within the ranks. Uh, you know, the German soldiers were tired. Uh, they knew what was going on. They knew, that, you know, by the middle of 1918, they knew that the war... Uh, was lost. It, it was a hopeless cause. So much so that the German Navy, when given the orders uh, in late 1918 to go out on basically one last hurrah suicide mission, uh, they refused. They said, no, we're not going to do this. Uh, you know, it's one thing to ask us to go out there if there's still a chance to win, but to just ask us to go out there and, you know, die gloriously, uh, you know, a lot of people don't want to die gloriously. A lot of people want to live. And that's what happened. Um, and also, we have to say, the, the British, the French, the Americans, not so much. The Americans came over and the British and French were like, listen, we've learned through the last four years and, you know, eight million casualties. This is the way you should do things. And Americans were like, Haha, that's great. We're doing things the American way. That means charging across the open ground. And the Germans were like, oh my goodness, what, these guys are really going to do this, aren't they? Oh, well, machine got them down. Um, American casualties during the 1918 campaign basically replicated French and British casualties in the early part of the war. You know, before they decided, hey, maybe, maybe charging across open land into machine gun nests is not the best way to ensure survival. But, you know, Americans don't like to do that. You know, I say that because I am American. You know, we, we always do have this attitude of <laughs> Europeans and their warfare. So anyway, the French and the British, though, started using what we call combined arms. And this is something very important because it's the great segue to World War II. So they started doing things like launching artillery barrages, creeping barrages, which is where the artillery would would fire. You know, let's say it started at you know, 500 yards in front of, you know, where you're attacking. And then it goes to 600, 700. So your soldiers kind of, they, they crawl behind the barrage with the hope that the barrage will keep the enemy, it'll either kill the enemy or keep them down enough so that when you finally show up, they're like, oh, hey, hi, what's going on here? You know, you just decide to show up. Um, also, by that point, um, tanks on the Allied side had really developed uh, a lot. They had uh, what the French called the Whippet tanks, which were small tanks that could go, um, you know, a dozen miles an hour, much faster than the tanks that only went about four or five miles an hour, which was the average speed for many World War I tanks. And given the artillery, these tanks and the aircraft, they were penetrating enemy lines, something that would be replicated in uh, World War II. They were going in and, and attacking, um, penetrating German lines. By the time uh, November showed up, as I said, the Germans were spent force. Now, here's why that's important, because in the interim, you know, people have a short-term memory, and people like to believe certain things. Now, in the 1920s and 1930s, in Germany there developed this uh, idea, this myth, and it was called the Dolstoichlegande, which is a great word to drop at a party over the weekend. You know, you'd be like, well, hey, listen, 
that's all good and well if it weren't for the Dolstoichlaganda. Now, what that really means is the following. The Germans came up with this myth that um, they were stabbed in the back. They were really, and, and part of it was because they owned, they still, German troops were still in enemy territory. That's true. But they were a beaten force. If the Germans had not signed an armistice in 1918, the winter would have come and gone, and by 1919, the uh, you know Allied forces would have basically marched into Berlin. The German army was a spent force. It had fought four years. It had suffered millions of casualties. It was beaten. Okay, it is not talking about the heroism of German soldiers uh, during the war. It has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with the military command. You know, I mean, the very fact of the matter is that the German forces by 1918 were surrendering by the tens of thousands. They were done. It was over. And so <clears throat> what happened was uh, in the 1920s and 30s, this myth rose up that Germany had been stabbed in the back, of course, by the usual suspects, by the Jews, by the communists, by the politicians, those liberal politicians who always stab the good, God-fearing, you know, conservatives in the back. And that was it. <clears throat> and, and many Germans, unfortunately, bought into this. Uh, you know, there was this feeling, of, well, we could have won the war if only, you know, it's, it's like the end of a Scooby-Doo episode, you know. Would have gotten away with it if it weren't for you meddling, you know, uh, kids. This was absolute, you know, this is absolutely false, categorically false. The German military was, as I said before, they were a spent force. Not only them, but the, again, there were people rioting in the cities. There was famine in certain German cities. Uh, you know, the military itself, you know, was like, listen, they, they rebuked their oath to the Kaiser. I mean, it was done. They realized, the head of the German military forces, the heads, realized that, uh, you know, they had to save uh, German lives at that point. Uh, and that was that. So in November, the Kaiser fled to the Netherlands, um, the last of the major central powers, and that was that. Now, that's the end of the war. But what happened afterwards? Well, <clears throat> afterwards, the Allied forces held uh, peace talks, and Woodrow Wilson, the American president, came out and said, listen, here's what we should do. And I'll tell you, I have mixed emotions about Woodrow Wilson. Um, he was a racist, uh, and, and he was, um, in some ways, not a great person. I mean, he was a, a, an apologist for the Confederacy. But I will say this for him, that when it came to post-World War I, uh, he was very um, prescient. I mean... He understood things better than the Europeans did. And he was like, listen, if you bury Germany, if you try and basically humiliate Germany, it's not going to end well. They're going to get aggravated. It's going to leave a bitter taste in the mouth. They're going to try and come back, which is exactly what happened, which is why we got World War II. But Wilson's policy was that we're going to have a new world order. And this is the important thing. There have been very few major reorganizations of world power in, you know, um, in recent history. Now, one of them was 
um, after the Napoleonic Wars, okay, um, where you had this complete reorganization, you know, this reorganization of Europe, you know, and again, if you look at things, those of you who are familiar with Europe, yes, Napoleon did, he, he, he uh, you know, galvanized France, and they went out and they conquered all of Europe, went to war against everyone, ended up getting overwhelmingly defeated, crushed. But what happened after the war, and this is the, the important point, they didn't bury France. They didn't crush France as a country. They were like, okay, listen, you screwed up. We're going to punish you a little bit. But we're not going to bury you. And France, because they realized France was a major political power in the world. They had colonies, and they were a major power in Europe. After World War I, uh, and I do, I'm sorry, uh, uh, you know, moi français, my French uh, brothers and sisters, uh, but I have to say, Clemenceau, the, 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 um, the, the head of the French delegation, was very adamant about trying to break Germany. Okay, the French remembered the, uh, you know, Franco-Prussian War of the 1870s, and they wanted to break Germany. They wanted to do things, but here was the problem. They only kind of half broke them. And that's the real message. If you're going to go to war, if you're going to break someone, you can't half it, okay? You have to go all the way. Uh, they didn't. Now, Wilson's policies would have resulted in a Germany that was punished somewhat for the war, but that was, was left as a you know, major power in Europe, which it was, which it would be. Um, but the other guys, uh, you know, Clemenceau, David Lloyd George, uh, you know, they were like, no, we want to we beat Germany up. And as a result, I mean, the, the Treaty of Versailles, which was the peace treaty that ended the war, um, that was presented to Germany. It was like, okay, listen, we've decided the war's over now. Here's the peace treaty. Sign where the X is. And Germany's like, well, what about our opinion. And it was like, nobody was asking you your opinion. So this created a tremendous amount of resentment. Uh, Now, the the opinions were harsh. The the going historical uh, policy, policy, the going historical opinion, many historians are like, well, the Treaty of Versailles resulted in such harsh policies that Germany wanted revenge. That's, I'm, I'm going to take umbrage with that. Um, the Treaty of Versailles that ended World War I did not cripple Germany the way that many people say it did, and it also was not the, the reason why Germany decided to rearm and go down that path. The real issues here are as following. Germany in World War I wanted what the Germans called Lebensraum, living space. In the East, Germany had always. Germany wasn't so concerned with conquering France. I mean, heck, they you know they they did as much. They marched in Paris in, in 1871. They it, there was no question about their desire. They didn't want to conquer France. What they wanted, what they believed was their right, was to expand Germany in the East. They did not want Poland to exist. They did not believe that the Russians had rights to these lands. Germany wanted a larger Germany in the East. This did not change in the interwar years, okay? 
Um, one of the major things that Hitler, you know, would would seize upon was the fact you know Poland was an illegitimate state. Uh, Czechoslovakia, you know, Yugoslavia, these were all illegitimate states. Germany deserved this land, okay? That's what didn't change. Germany still felt that she had her place in the sun and that she should be the dominant force in Central Europe. And because of that, Everything that happened in the 1920s and 1930s, it led to Hitler. People all, you know, the running joke in school with me, you know, I have kids always be like, if only Hitler had gotten into that art school, you know, then World War II wouldn't have happened. And it's it's funny. It's a funny joke. You know, you almost want to get the the guy who, (laughs) imagine you were that guy. I don't know who he is, but imagine you were that guy and it's like, you know, 1955, you know, and it's like, Man, who the heck was that guy that turned down Adolf Hitler from an art school? And you're just like, yeah, yeah, no, that, what a jerk he must have been. <laughs> yeah, no, terrible guy. By the way, let's not look too far. He's probably dead or he moved to Antarctica or something like that. The reality is a lot deeper. The reality is that Germany never really accepted that they had lost the First World War. First of all, they were tied down to, you know, as the saying goes, uh, shackled to a corpse, okay? Austria-Hungary was a terrible, terrible ally from the military perspective. The Ottoman Empire was making a comeback, but they were still several years away from it. Germany alone fought against the majority of the enemy forces. Even when they weren't fighting directly, they were sending troops to the Middle East. They were sending troops to Austria. They were fighting on the Western Front, the Eastern Front, the Northern, the Southern, everything, okay? So Germany felt that it was like, you know, well, we we did this. We could do it again, okay? If Hitler had never existed, there would have been someone who would have rallied German right-wing thought, which was still very strong after the war, okay? It was still very strong. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying it would have been the Nazis, it would have been someone else. But I do feel that the German uh, philosophy about the war would have continued this idea of, you know, we could still do this. And, you know, for the first, for the first three years of World War II, they pretty much showed that they could. You know, they overran Poland, they overran France, and, and for the first year and a half against the Soviet Union, I mean, goodness gracious, it, it was, uh, you know, it was like, it's not a matter of uh, if, but when we would conquer them. So I do stress that, and I do stress that, you know, when I'm talking to my students, you know, that what happened with World War II was the fact that World War I was never conclusively ended. The Germans were still bitter. They still felt they could do things. And they went out and tried to do it again. You know, they still wanted it. None of the major issues were resolved. Yes, there were new countries that were formed. But the, the general idea behind World War I, you know, the idea of the German, you know, the, the, the uh, Grosse Deutschland, the greater Germany, that was still there. It didn't go away. So the results of World War I on, and I'm going to spend, this is the final part of this episode and the final part of the, the three-part series, results of the war. First of all, nothing was really solved, okay? Um, yes, there was a League of Nations formed. 
The League of Nations was toothless. They didn't have the ability, like the UN does, to send forces in to protect. For example, in Korea, the United Nations was like, oh boy, you know, one of these countries is being invaded by another. They authorized the use of force to defend South Korea against North Korea. Multiple opportunities, you know, in Iraq, you know, the, the United Nations authorized the use of force. You didn't have that with the League of Nations. It was basically just like, you don't do that. Italy, what are you doing in Ethiopia? Oh, we're just going to invade and uh, kill a bunch of people. No, you had better not. Uh, or else what? Or else, uh, you know, uh, I mean, you want to talk today. The joke is about the UN sending a strongly worded letter. I mean, back then it wasn't even a strongly worded letter. It was basically just like, or else we're going to tisk tis you. And it was like, oh, yeah, no, we'll, 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 we'll totally withdraw our forces. So they had no real say. There was nothing. Second of all, the United States, um, thanks to the uh, Conservative Party, uh, completely, you know, wasn't even a signatory to any of this stuff. Completely withdrew. It was like, okay, we're done here. We're going to withdraw. The United States, which was a growing power, not the mega power it is today, but it was a growing power. It was being acknowledged as a growing power by the Europeans. Refused to get involved in any of this. Uh, in what could have been, they could have threatened to throw their weight around. They didn't, okay? And the war had been catastrophic to European countries. France, most of all, I mean, a quarter of France had been invaded, occupied. The, the bloodshed that happened in French territory is almost unimaginable. To this day, they're still finding bombs, they're still finding mines, you know, artillery shells that haven't exploded in French territory. It was devastated. And so you can't really blame the French for not wanting another war with Germany. And we look at the 1930s and say, why didn't the French just attack them when they could have? Because the French had dealt with four years of war on their own land. They knew what it was like. They had suffered millions of casualties. And for all of those people that run around talking about the whole, you know, the cheese-eating surrender monkeys, okay? I mean, this is insulting, and that's why I won't have it in my classroom. The French in World War I suffered horrific losses, but fought heroically, and they defeated the Germans, okay? Four years on, the French bore the brunt of all major German attacks, you know, and, and they managed to beat them back. They had help, but nobody, I mean, Belgium, yes, Belgium was, was mostly conquered and occupied. Belgium is a small country. England, the United Kingdom, that was never occupied. Nobody died with the exception of the Zeppelin, you know, uh, the lead Zeppelin runs, as I like to call them. And, you know, yes, there was some bombing of London and uh, surrounding areas, but nobody was actually attacking French territory. French territory was not continuously bombed there, there weren't artillery shells raining down for years on them. Their soldiers died, yes. The, the British suffered uh, tremendous losses during the First World War. But it wasn't, it wasn't on the level with the French. Um, in fact, the British at one point, and I bring this up a lot of times when I'm teaching the First World War, the British came up with this idea of like the, the, the buddy battalions, which was basically that you know when you sign up for the military... You don't know who you're going to be serving with. And the British were like, we've got a great idea. We'll allow people from the same towns 
to serve with one another. So, for example, I grew up in South River. It would be like, listen, if you sign up, join the military, and we'll let you serve with all of your buddies from South River, you'll be in the same unit. Now, that's great on the surface because it's like, I know who I'm going to be with. I'm going to be with the guys that I'm used to. And also the idea behind it, which wasn't a bad idea, was that, you know, when, when you know the guys that you're with, you're more willing to potentially, you know, run into harm's way, sacrifice for them. The downside, of course, was that after certain battles, these units were obliterated. You'd have a town, you know, where all of a sudden, you know, it was like, oh, 210 guys, you know, joined from this town. 150 of them are dead. Um, so every other house ends up having, you know, black uh, ribbons around the house. Um, it was absolutely devastating. Um, even though with the British, uh, 7 out of 10 uh, uh, British soldiers survived the war. Um, not unscathed, but they survived it. Only 3 out of 10 died. But the result of the war was that, you know, you had these tremendous casualties in Europe. Europeans were really, really sh shaken by this. Um, several major empires collapsed. The Russian Empire been around for hundreds of years, collapsed. They had a civil war, eventually being communist. That'll be the subject of another one of my podcasts. Uh, Germany collapsed. Austria-Hungary disintegrated and broke up into uh, six different countries or so. What, uh, Austria, Hungary, eventually it would become, you know, Yugoslavia, uh, you know, uh, Czechoslovakia, parts of other stuff. <clears throat> um, the Ottoman Empire, and this is perhaps the most um, intriguing, uh, 1917, the British issued the Balfour Declaration where they said that His Majesty's government looks um, upon the establishment of a homeland for the Jews, provided that nothing happens to the people who are living there. Uh, this had been something, and this is something for a whole nother podcast. I, I, if I start on this right now, this podcast will go from about 30 minutes to uh, uh, about 300 minutes. But I'm going to say this. It started after the war the British took over um, the, the, what we call Palestine. Today it's Israel and the Palestinian territories. But it was the mandate of Palestine, okay, according to the League of Nations. And over the next 30 years little under 30 years, there would be a tremendous amount of um, controversy over what was going on there. What was going on, uh, you know, Palestinian Arabs arguing, we don't want a Jewish state here. Jews moving into the area saying, we're going back to our homeland. Um, the, the effects of World War I are still felt today. I mean, after the war, you know, there was the, the desire for the Arab revolt you know, against the Ottomans, led by, you know, one of my favorite characters, T.E. Lawrence. You know, they led a revolt, Faisal of Mecca led a revolt, and then after the war, the Sykes-Picot Treaty was like, oh, did we tell you guys that you were going to have your own country? Oh, I'm sorry. We forgot to tell you that the British and the French, we agreed that we were going to split up the land amongst one another, and you guys are SOL. <clears throat> And, you know, there was a lot of, you know, to this day you're dealing with that. The creation of Iraq, Kuwait, Transjordan, as it was called, Jordan today, Syria. 
Uh, these are all the remnants of World War I. Uh, you know, it, it, it's just, it's amazing because, you know, in the West we like to blame the Middle East, all these problems, why can't they get their stuff straight? Well, there's a good reason for that. It's because you created these states and you created them artificially weak because you didn't want them to become powerful. You really didn't want to have a strong Iraq it, it, for various reasons. I mean, for crying out loud, you, you were like, hey, how about we get the Shias, the Sunnis, and the Kurds and put them all into one country? What's the worst that could happen? Well, well, the worst that could happen is that the only way that the country managed to stay together was because you ended up having a dictator. Okay, Saddam Hussein, who killed everyone. So everyone was like, oh, better keep our mouths shut here. But today you can see the results of that. You could see how the Kurds are fighting desperately for their own homeland, which they deserve for the record. And you could see what the results of having Sunnis and Shias, you know, lumped into the same area. You can see what happened with Saddam with, you know, the, uh, you know, attacking Shias uh, constantly, because who doesn't? Um, you know, and, and the Middle East has really never, it's never gotten itself onto a straight path after World War I. Um, so you've got that. You also had nascent Indian nationalism. You had Japan coming out of the war feeling that they were potentially a global power. So that's really what I wanted to, to kind of end things on. You know, it, it would become, in 20 years, it was, I believe it was Marcel Falk of the, the French, he said, this is not a peace treaty, it is basically a ceasefire for 20 years. And 20 years later, after the Treaty of Versailles in 1939, World War II would break out with Germany invading Poland um, and, and the subsequent actions. So I do think that we have to look at it in that perspective. Um, it was a, 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 you know, a horrendous war. It did settle certain issues. I think that those issues were, as uh, Strain said in, in his seminal books, you know, the ideas of nationalism and of right versus wrong, the idea, especially after Russia got knocked out, the idea of you know, democracies taking precedence over anything else. It, it became very important because in World War II, you would also kind of have that apologies to the Soviet Union. Now, they were not a democracy. But, you know, you, you still had this uh, idea of, you know, this general idea of the rights of man. And, you know, if you're interested in a lot more of this, uh, definitely, you know, go look it up. You Strayan has some really good stuff about it. Uh, you know, they did a, uh, um, it was a six or nine part series about the First World War, and it's tremendous stuff uh, to watch, <clears throat> especially stuff that's in color. Uh, but, you know, we need to just keep in mind that these kinds of ideas and, and the, the reasons why the war was fought still remain today, all right? And I, while I don't think we'll ever have a situation where we're fighting on that level like we did back then, I would have to say that, you know, it is something that it is worth looking over because when you're dealing with certain issues, if you don't resolve them, they end up lingering. And when they linger, they end up causing problems later on. And that's pretty much the end of uh, the First World War here. 
Um, I'm going to probably do an episode, uh, I think, middle of the week before Thanksgiving. It's coming up in the United States Thanksgiving this week. Uh, I've had a lot of requests to do more than just one episode a week. So I might just do uh, two episodes a week, something midweek, and then again something on Sunday. Um, my Instagram, Antonius Optimus, uh, is up there talking about things. Today is the anniversary of Charles Darwin's publication of on this, uh, Origins of Species, uh, which if you know you have any any brains, you're pretty much understanding that you know evolution, natural selection, uh, that's something that is real and it's it's coming there. So uh, definitely um, follow me on Instagram. Um, you know, drop a line if you like this, if you want me to talk about something else in the meantime. Otherwise, I will uh, probably, like I said, put up another thing uh, midweek. I hope that you all have a wonderful rest of your evening and a great week ahead of you. Until we speak again, bye-bye.